It's good to be back, and uh, I love that in our ministry there's so many opportunities to fellowship, to have fun. Uh, This is why we gather, though. We gather to open God's Word, and we gather to understand it and to know it in full. And so today, where where we are in this letter that we've been working through, the letter of Colossians, chapter 3, and we're in verses 5 through 11, looking at the new life of the Christian, and Paul begins this section with these words. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have been put off, that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. Pray with me. Father, as we seek to know your word, would its truth write itself on our hearts. Give us ears to hear eyes to see, and give us hearts that are affectionate of you. Thank you for your love and your grace that by the work of your Spirit, those who believe in Christ are able to understand the truth that you've revealed to us, even this passage before us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I've uh, talked to you before about some of the things that my family and I have gone through, one of the biggest challenges for us was with our oldest daughter who, uh, back when she was two years old, was diagnosed with leukemia. Uh, it's not a fun journey and it's a difficult road to, to navigate by and you can imagine when December 19th, 2018, that news first reached our home. Um, the minute that something like that comes up in your life, the first question you ask is, what do we do? How are we going to fix this problem? How are we going to handle this? How are we going to take care of this? Uh, How are we going to ensure that our daughter, who's only two years old, doesn't die? Those questions swirled in my mind and in my wife's mind, and ultimately we knew that doctors had a better answer than we did. And so we, in a hospital room, uh, sought answers. And the one answer that we had for what our daughter was facing Uh, was what you know as uh, chemotherapy. If you've ever understood what chemo is, uh, it's uh, a way in which uh, doctors get into your body. They send certain uh, drugs, medicinal drugs, into your body in order to help you. And the work that that's supposed to do, the effort that that's taking, is uh, that chemo is meant to kill off your blood cells, all of it. It's not supposed to leave any trace behind. In fact, uh, because they want to be sure that they've done a good job in a little person as such as a two-year-old, they do that process twice just to be sure that they've got it right. 
and it doesn't always check out, but the point is that they want to get into your body, which has an issue, and they want to take out everything that's bad in it in hopes that the body will reproduce and renew itself with new and fresh life. Everything that is in there that's cancerous and that could kill her needs to be removed in order to preserve her life. And sometimes that's how life works. If you want to preserve it, you have to kill something else off. It works that way for cancer. It, were to, it works that way if you're in an encounter with a mountain lion or a bear. It works that way sometimes if your home was under attack and you needed to protect yourself. It works that way in war. And the message that Paul has for us here this morning is if it works that way in life at times, it most certainly and definitely works that way for you spiritually. If you're a Christian, the means to life is truly death. Something has to give. And in the Christian's life, if your life is to demonstrate what you've been given in Christ, if your life will demonstrate that you've set your mind on things that are above, that you're seeking the things that are above, that your life is hidden in Christ, that Jesus is your Lord, then the way that you live in life is by means of killing off sin. Sin is the greatest threat that you face. Sin seeks to thwart every ounce of assurance that you have in the gospel. Sin seeks to tamper with the validity and the truth of the gospel as you believe it. Sin seeks to keep you from loving Jesus and from loving God's people. Sin seeks to bring you down. And instead of receiving God's promises, it forces you and pushes you and sets you on a course to instead receive God's wrath. Paul makes it very clear in verses 5 to 11, in the Christian's life, there is no room for being comfortable with sin. It's not a game. It's not something trivial. It's not something that doesn't matter. In fact, if anything, it's much like cancer. If you're going to get rid of it, you must kill it off. For as Richard Baxter, a great Puritan preacher said, kill sin before it kills you. That's why Paul takes this so seriously. That's why our church takes this so seriously. And for many of you, this is why your families take it so seriously. Your parents and your loved ones. It's so easy when we get involved in a conversation about sin to start decrying that people are legalistic. They just want to follow rules. They always want to tell us what to do. They always want to tell us how to live. And absolutely, there's a danger with that. In fact, Paul already addressed that in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, 16, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a, a Sabbath. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Verse 23, these have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion at asceticism. There is a way to be religious and not be made new. And yet, if you've believed on the Lord Jesus, you've believed in him as your savior, and you've believed in him as the one who can give you new life and who helps you to walk in new life, 
then sin is not something you desire. It doesn't take anyone telling you that. It takes Jesus making you that way. If you have loved Jesus, you will not love sin. And that's good news for us because the truth is, though we have been saved by Christ, my guess is that you, like me, still struggle with sin. But my hope is that you think about it and you work with it altogether differently than you did before you knew Christ. You might still sin, but you hate it. It agonizes you. It causes you distress. It causes you despair. It causes you to think hard and long about why am I still doing something that I hate? That's good news for a Christian. To think that way of sin and to be so warped by it and to have one's mind so pricked by it is good news for a Christian because that's a reminder that you have new life. And so if you have that new life, you should be given, like Paul, to killing off sin. It's not something we play with. It's not something we give room to grow. It's not something we get comfortable with. Sin needs to be put to death or else your life is in jeopardy. That's Paul's message for us in these uh, six verses. And I want us to see that Paul emphasizes this by looking at two predominant ways in which we sin. They aren't all-encompassing. They don't reach every single sin that's imaginable. They don't reach the depths of how evil man can be, but they are primary ways in which we sin. And we can lump them into two categories. One, we can talk about private sins, and two, we can talk about social sins. So that's how we're going to look at it. Uh, We're going to look at this idea that Paul presents for us, uh, this reality that the Christian is given to killing sin and to putting off sin by means of putting off private sins, and also by means of putting off social sins. We begin by looking at this command in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. You'll notice this follows up the verses before very well. Before we were told to seek the things above, not what's on the earth. We were told to set our minds on the things above, not on things that are on earth. And so now Paul says, in that same token, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And so what that means is that those things that are earthly, those things that do pertain to this world, those things that pertain to wickedness and evil, though Christ has saved you from them, yes, you still have them in you and you wrestle with them, and you fight them. Christ has won a great battle for you, and Colossians 2 verse 14 says he's canceled the record of debt that we had and its legal demands. He's nailed them to the cross. But you have to recognize that in Christ doing this, it's like him taking your tab. You, you know, like up in the coffee shop, I've been doing this all week. We have a, a doctoral program going on here right now, and so we have a lot of meetings, we have a lot of speakers that are here, a lot of students, and we love to treat them to some solid steeplehouse coffee. And so at the beginning of the week, I go in and I tell the barista, hey, I'd like to open a tab. And whenever someone comes in and they say they're in the D-Min program, which has nothing to do with, you know, 
demons. It has to do with, it's an acronym, don't worry. Uh, whenever someone comes in and says, I'm a doctoral student in the Doctor of Ministry program, they can go on the tab. And so every expense is added to that tab. Your sins have been nailed to the cross. The ones you've done, the ones you're in right now, and the ones you will commit in your lifetime. And they go on Jesus' tab and they've been paid for. That doesn't change the fact that you still have to fight those things to the death in the present. What Christ has gained you eternally, you still have to wrestle with in the present. It doesn't take away any guarantee of your future hope to know that in the present, you must fight sin. And look at how how plainly Paul puts it. Don't put it to sleep. Don't put it away. Don't hide it in a closet. Don't save it for later. Don't think that it, you know, I've done enough. It should be good now. No, his command is so clear. Put it to death. Be finished with it. That's hard. That's challenging. But it mimics the words of Jesus himself. If you want to gain life, you must lose it. Put it to death. Be done with it. Be rid of it. Have nothing else to do with it. Don't give it room to think that it can creep back up in your life and take over. Finish it off. This is how serious Paul takes sin. And my question for you would be, is this how serious you take sin? Is sin something in your life that you coddle, that you give room to, that you're okay with? That you think, yeah, that's not too big of a deal. I'll take care of it later. It's not how Paul would describe how we should handle sin. We ought to put it to death. It ought to have no room in our lives. Paul takes this very clear and very pointed direction and instruction And he applies it to very particular sins. And I think that's also really wise for us to think about when we talk about sin and when we talk about putting it to death, we're not talking about general things, we're talking about very specific things. And I know in Esai's life, the things that I need to work on, I know the things that I need to put to death, and so should you. You should specify your sin. You should call it by what it is. Not only what it is generally, sin, but you should call it by what it is specifically. When you know your sin, you you ought to desire to put it to death. And the only way you're going to do that is by calling it what it is. Paul does that for us here. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And firstly, he looks at these very private sins. Firstly, he looks at these private sins Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, we don't have time to break down each and every single one of these sins with, for 15 minutes in a row. That would kind of defeat the point, of, I think, even of the text. However, he does call these sins by name, and it's good for you to understand how these things could creep up in your life. 
And he begins very pointedly with a sin that is common to all men, sexual immorality. And you ask, how is that common to all of us? I'm not doing anything I shouldn't be doing. I haven't committed adultery. I'm not sleeping around. I'm not going around giving myself to other people. And you would be completely missing the point. Sexual immorality is not a description of just simply what you do with your body. It's a description of what you do with your mind. It's a description of where your heart is. And passages like this, they're kind of uncomfortable, and honestly, they're meant to be. They're meant to be. They're meant for you to ask yourself very serious questions. And to, in light of conversations that sometimes and oftentimes might even be used in jokes or in jesting, these things aren't funny at all. Gentlemen, the way that you walk into this room, the way that you walk into your school, the way that you think of other women, the way that you think of the people that you sit around, that matters. Because your thoughts govern the way that you will live. And you might think that you can think your way to death, but you won't. Eventually, you'll act upon the very things that you think. And someone who's given their mind to sexual immorality, to constantly thinking of others in ways that they shouldn't, objectifying people, using people, even if it's privately in the confines of their own mind, is offensive to God. Put these things to death. Ladies, you have a responsibility in this as well. You're not absolved from this. In fact, our society is doing everything possible to catch you up with the guys. And this isn't a sermon in which I tell you how to dress or tell you how to look. That's a job for your parents, and I think you do have an obligation to be a blessing to your brothers. But more than anything, this is an opportunity for you to assess your heart and the things that you long for. That if your mind is constantly warped, by a desire to be sexually immoral, it is impossible to then tell me, more importantly, to tell God that your mind is set on things above. That's the message Paul has for us here. Put these things to death. And purity goes another step in the process. There's being sexually immoral, there's then being impure. It's a little bit more general, it's a little bit more broad than the, the specificity of sexual immorality, it means that your mind is unclean. It's filthy. It means that your mind is given to all kinds of evil. And you begin to see how this first section, these private sins, they're so linked, right? The sexually immoral mind, of course it's a filthy place. Why? Because it's a place that's filled with passion and evil desire. It's a place that has a lot of longing. It has a lot of desire, but none of it's given to God and none of it's given to good. It's only evil. It only wants, and it only wants selfishly. It doesn't want the things of God. It only longs for what it desires. And it reminds us again of James chapter one, that desire, if it is not put out, leads to lust, leads to sin, leads to death. Put these things to death. It rounds out this conversation with this focus on covetousness, and I think that these things are all related because they all stem from that root sin. 
Covetousness is a sin that all of us likely struggle with in this room. It's a sin of constantly wanting more. You never have enough. You, you're, you're, you're greedy. And what's more, it's not simply that you don't have enough. You're always looking around at what everyone else has, and you want that. I want what that guy has. I want what that girl has. Maybe it's a material. Maybe it's a popularity. Maybe it's the family. Maybe it's their friends. Maybe it's the things they have. But whatever it is, covetousness is a sin by which we constantly look around and we never look up. We constantly look at what everyone else has in life and want it instead of looking up to God and recognizing and receiving what God has already given in his son. It's a life that's dissatisfied. It's a life that's discontent. It's a life that's always wanting. And a life like that cannot say that it has Jesus. Put these things to death. Now this is a passage that's written to believers, and these are things that we will struggle with, but this ought not to be your habit, and it ought not to leave you settled. You shouldn't be comfortable in these sins. These things ought to lead you to the cross, to where God forgave them in the first place. Anyone who's comfortable in these sins, they're in grave danger. And verse 6 makes that so clear for us, doesn't it? Oh, why are you in danger if you're comfortable with these sins? It's because on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked, but when you were living in them. These things, they don't describe you anymore. They aren't your pattern of life anymore. They're what you used to be. They're no longer what you are. They're what you used to want. They're no longer what you desire. God has done a work in you through Jesus in all those who believe that now when these things come up in their heart, they would see nothing better for them than that they die. You don't long for these things. You hope that they're put to death because these are the very things that stored up God's wrath against you you if god has been so kind and he has to forgive you in the death and resurrection of his ever reigning son why would you be comfortable with the very things that put jesus on the cross paul's argument is exactly that you wouldn't be you would choose to watch those things die. I wonder if this is true of your life. As a Christian, are are you in a place in your life, as every Christian is, where you see sin and you don't want it? Where these things creep up and you recognize they have no room here with Jesus. Uh, This has no home in me because Jesus is in me. These aren't things that I desire because I desire Christ. These aren't things that I want to give myself to because I am given to Christ. Or are these things okay with you? It's fine. It's not a big deal. 
I'm forgiven anyway, so what's the matter anyway? It doesn't matter. God will forgive me. God's forgiveness has never been a means for you to go on sinning. It's always been a means for you to live more for him. These private sins, these things that oftentimes people don't even see, I wonder if you have a desire to put them all away, to put them all out, because a Christian does. A Christian has a desire to see those things die off. Not only that, not only does a Christian have a desire to see those personal sins die off, there are also things that we do with one another, against one another, or to one another that we ought to see go away. And verse 8 begins this conversation about social sins that we ought to see put away. Beginning, beginning in verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Get rid of it. Be done with this. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscure talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, we've dealt with certain private sins, certain personal sins, not all of them, but we recognize those things that are deep in our hearts that oftentimes many don't even know about. We ought to put those things away. And so too do we recognize by means of verse 8, those things that affect others also need to be put away. It begins with another series that is well-linked and well-connected, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and then really speech from there on out. And it kind of goes the inverse of the first section. If the first gave us the huge sin up front and then led to the motives, this one goes the other way around. It begins with the motive and it then leads to where that heads, what direction that takes you in. And one great social motive that always leads to sin is anger. Anger, bitterness, discontent. I didn't get my way. I didn't get what I wanted. I'm not happy. I'm not satisfied. That's not going to bring me joy. And so I need to do something about it. It's that very first sin that we see the moment that Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden. It's that very first sin that, though it seems so minor, leads to such grave consequences. Because the moment that anger takes root in your heart, so does hate. And so we would see it very clearly in Genesis chapter 4. A brother willing to kill his brother. Why? Because he was angry. It's a sin unlike any other because if it's not controlled, it leads to all kinds of chaos and destruction. And that's the trajectory that Paul takes here. Anger, this bitterness, it leads to what? Wrath. It leads to doing something about it. Because I'm bitter, because I'm not happy, I need to show someone else that. I'm going to let them know. I'm going to show them that I'm not happy. 
I'm going to show them just how upset I am. And you should know this. This looks very different for very different people. Sometimes you think of wrath, and, and the thing you think of, it's kind of like a inside out, you know, the angry, anger guy. You know, like his head blows up, and, you know, that's what we think of when we think of wrath. It's someone's head blowing up, and they're really upset. They're really loud. That isn't always wrath. It can be. Some of you like to play the quiet game with people. You're going to take it out on somebody because you're so upset that you're not going to talk to them. So you're going to let them feel your anger. You don't blow up, but you're cold to them. You're mean to them. You're distant from them. You're quiet with them. And you want them to feel just how upset you are. Might be a different kind of wrath. Same kind of sin has no room in a Christian. This anger and wrath, when left unchecked, it leads to all kinds of evil. That's what malice means. Malice is that you have a heart that is willing to do anything to get even with someone else. You're willing to do anything if it would hurt someone else. You're willing to do anything if it were to bring someone else down. That malicious heart, when that's left unchecked, it leads to speech that is ungodly and unbecoming of God's people. That's what slander is. A slander, this means by which I talk about you, but oh yeah, you're not here. Yeah, I'm going to say things about that person, but they're not in sight, and that's the only reason I'm saying it. Yeah, I'm going to bring that person up in conversation, and I'm going to say a bunch of things about them, but I would never say it if they were around. I'm going to demean someone. I'm going to talk about someone, maybe even ways that are untrue, if it means that others will think less of them. That quickly follows a bitter, wrathful heart, one with malicious intent. And it leads to two grave issues. One is, as Paul puts it, obscene talk. It's talk that is filthy, unbecoming of God's people, But it also leads to verse 9, lying to one another. And this is, if you're seeing it, it's a portrait of what happens to God's people when sin is allowed to stay. When God's people are comfortable with sin, God's people are divided amongst each other. That's really Paul's point here. That where God's people do not put sin away, Where God's people don't put sin to death, there is all kinds of things that will distort the unity that we have in Christ. If we let sin reign amidst our fellowship, if you let sin reign amidst your friend groups, if you let sin reign in your Bible study, if you let it take hold amongst your small group, There's no way you can expect to receive the blessings that come from being united in Christ. And you already know that's true. How many friendships broken up because someone said something about someone else? And nobody knows if it's true or not. How many relationships destroyed just because I can't get over how I feel and I don't want to forgive someone else you've seen this in your life i've seen it in my own 
Paul's message is just simple and clear. If we allow those kinds of attitudes, those earthly perspectives to reign in our hearts, we cannot expect to be the kind of people Christ has called us to be. And he makes this so clear for us. And verse 9, don't lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You've been made new and you're being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. I think that's an awesome text for us because it then highlights something that maybe we've been thinking about all along. Maybe you get it and you're saying, I want to put sin to death. I want to put it away, both in the confines of my heart and also with other people. I want to do that, but how? How am I expected to do that? That's not easy. That's challenging. That's hard. And Paul says, you do it by being renewed in the knowledge after the image of your creator. Who made you? Christ. Colossians 1, 16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. And so Paul's message is this, you're being made new based upon your ever-growing knowledge of the one who made you. I guess we could put it this way. The more you know and love Jesus, the more you hate and kill sin. The more your life reflects that of Christ, the less comfortable you are with the very thing that put him on a cross. The more that you reflect on the glory of the one who gave his life to save you, the less you'll give yourself to the things that ruin your relationship with him. Give yourself to Jesus. Set your mind on him above and sin will fall gravely short before him. If you want to kill sin, let your mind be renewed by the knowledge of Christ. Where do you get that? You get that from his word. You get that from those who love his word. You get that from praying. You get that from being in fellowship with him. You get that from being in fellowship with one another. These are the means that God has given us to kill sin. God He's not unkind. He's honest and gracious. And thereby, he doesn't desire to leave you where you are. Instead, he's desired to save us and transform us. The old self, it's passed away. The new has come. We have been made now to become like our Savior. And Paul, he rounds this out in verse 11, and he makes it so clear for us. In these words, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. What's Paul's point there? It's that the unity we have in our church, in our fellowship with each other, though it might be tainted by sin, it's only bound together by Christ. 
all the racial tensions that existed between Jew and Greek, all the religious tension that existed between those who were pagan and those who were Jewish, all the social tension that existed between the slave and the free, the barbarian and the Scythian, all those things have been done away with. As has it been for all of you. If you love Jesus, it matters a whole lot less where someone else comes from, what their economic status is, what their background is, what their ethnicity is, the things they like, the things they don't like. What matters most is that they love Jesus, and because of that, your bond is unbreakable. If sin is the very thing that will destroy God's people, then we recognize Christ is the very one and the only one that can keep it together. Sin has sought to bring you down. Sin has sought to ruin your relationships with each other. And yet there is Christ forgiving and restoring. That's Paul's message. And if you've been a part of God's family, one that is forgiven and restored, then you will desire to put sin away, to rid yourself of it, to see it die, because you know it gains you nothing. And you would desire, like Paul, to see Christ be the very one who becomes the center of everything you do, the center of your relationships, the center of your life, the center of the reason that you do things, the center of the, of the reason that you desire things. And you desire Him to be the very reason that you stay united with one another. Friends, this is a good opportunity for you to assess your heart. Where are you personally, privately with the Lord? Is there anything that you need to bring before Him that you think you're hiding from Him? Listen, you're probably really good at hiding it from the rest of us. You're really bad at hiding it from Him. Nothing is hidden from Him. Confess those things. Bring them to God. Receive forgiveness. Maybe you have fallen short with your brother or sister. Maybe you've fallen short with one another. This is a good opportunity and reminder that to live in unforgiveness, to live in bitterness, to live in malice, to live in slander, to continue to lie about each other, that has no room here. But more importantly, it has no room with Christ. And to claim him would mean that you would give that up to be made right with each other. Is that something you need to do with someone in this room? Is that something you need to do with someone in your home? Is that something you need to do with someone in your school? I don't know, but you do. And I pray that you would be honest with yourself and live as Christ would have you live. Pray with me and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you, God, that because of Christ, we've been given new life. We've been given an opportunity not only to see Christ as he is, but also to see ourselves as we are, to recognize that we have been forgiven. And at the same time, we continue to sin, we continue to struggle, and we must be vigilant to see those things put away. Help us to be honest with ourselves about the things that we need to bring and confess before you, 
the things that we need to bring and confess before others and help us to walk in that newness of life that is uncomfortable with sin but instead is given to righteousness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.